FX medicine is evolving. The same evidence-based research, ideas and thought-provoking conversations that you love in refreshed new formats. To help co-create it with us and for member rewards, sign up at fxmedicine.com.au. For now, enjoy this podcast previously recorded with Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Kate Holm. Kate's a naturopath, nutritionist, speaker and previous lecturer who recently took her most important and exciting role as a mum. Kate has always had a professional devotion to children and her interest in preconception and fertility care drives her passion so that couples may experience the joy of parenthood with the best possible health outcomes for their children. She believes that our little people are our world, and it's through educating and supporting families that a ripple effect of positive health changes are made in both current and future generations. Welcome to FX Medicine. Kate, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining (laughs) us, and thanks for taking time out of your day. Today, we'll be discussing working with the paediatric patient. So I guess we start with what are some of the differences and even case-taking for a child versus an adult patient? Yeah, I find that, I mean, depending on the age of the child, their history is not actually very long. Um, You know, if you're working with a baby, they may be of days or months old. So the depth that you're getting in terms of past health history is not necessarily there for the child, but you may actually be finding that you're doing more questioning around how is the conception, how's the health of mum and dad, how is the pregnancy, how is the birth, and really honing in on these areas that for an adult patient you may find that you touch on but you skim over um, in not quite as much detail. It's also, I guess because you have such a short history, every little milestone and every little um, you know, blip on the radar with their health becomes a lot more significant. So I do find that we spend a lot more time delving into each little area of health that may have had a problem arise or maybe they've been really well and you're actually just working with one significant um, event which could make the consultation quite short. (laughs) Um, I find also that with the intake forms that you're using, you'd have quite different questioning there as well. So again, asking around, um, you know, conception, did that occur easily or um, was there maybe some IVF used to support that conception of the child? Are they generally of a good temperament? Um, I mean, I know we chat to adults about their mood, but you may not necessarily on an intake form ask them to describe their own temperament (laughs) all the time. Um, Do they have siblings? What's the dynamic there in the family? Are they in daycare? Are they in school? Um, And kind of, yeah, looking more at those social factors that can really significantly influence a child's health as well. Okay. So can I just ask with regards to the age of children that you care Mm. for, when we're talking about the paediatric patient, what age group are you discussing? So anything really from the neonate right up until the teenager. So there's a pretty wide range of 
um, changes that would mm. happen across that Huge. those age groups as well. And so then the way that you work with those patients would change quite drastically also. Like obviously, you know, the babies and toddlers aren't going to really have much say in what goes on for their health. They're not able to communicate that with you versus the teenage patient who really you're trying to navigate their emotions and their feelings and their compliance around treatment plans and their current health situation. Um, so, yeah, you do have to kind of wear a number of different hats, maybe change up the language that you're using, the references that you might make to pop culture or toys or whatever it might be to get that child engaged. Um, but yeah, it's a really, it's a, a diverse group of patients, but a really great group of patients to work with. Kate, with regards to milestones, I've come across instances where there's not just a little bit of a delay with a milestone, but quite a a significant delay with a milestone, but it ended up not being due to a problem. It was just mm. that, for instance, a sibling did all the talking for this person, so this person didn't speak. <laughs> um, how much leeway do you give to milestones? Do you do you or do you take it in the relevance of the family situation? Yeah. So always taking into account the family situation. And so, for example, if there is an older sibling who's maybe doing all the talking or even sometimes you see with the um, physical milestones around movement, children with older siblings will progress much, much faster than babies who don't have any other siblings to be observing. Right. Um, with children, I do tend to get quite a team on board. So I'm really fortunate. Um, the practice that I work from is a children's chiropractic centre. So often I'll have a chiropractor also assessing the child so they can look very much at those um, retained reflexes and physical development. They can, um, with regard to the speech development, be assessing things orally, or you may have a speech pathologist on board for that as well. So I do find that you know, I can have my inkling and my perception of maybe there is a family dynamic that's causing a change, but also have other people assessing those physical um, elements as well. Generally with children, you want that support team anyway. I think it's great. I mean, with all patients to have that collaborative approach, but with kids, because you may not give as much leeway to things if they're a problem, just so you can get on top of it faster and then allow appropriate development after that. Yep. It's good to get... Um, many eyes across the case. But absolutely, it's a really common scenario to have older siblings doing the talking for the younger <laughs> sibling. But you may find that that child who they may not be very vocal in the home still has the ability to, um, you know, they may still have words available to them. They're just not expressing them. So that could come out in, um, you know, a situation with a speech pathologist or in a, you know, closed room without the sibling. Yeah. And temperament, you mentioned that as well. I've mm. seen, sadly, even doctors, even specialists judging a child, um, saying, mm. oh, the, you know, there's a real issue with their development, um, when mm. really it was the temperament of the child. And when you looked at the temperament of the father, the father was just mm. shy. The child was yeah. just shy. And there was this amazing breakthrough that happened just a little bit later. And it was like, oh, well, there mm. you go. Had this parent believed that paediatrician, this yeah. child would have been treated. Yeah. You know? I and think it's, it's just, really important oh. to um, work with families closely so that not only you're getting to know mum and dad's personality, 
you know, other sibling personality, child's personality, but also to form that relationship where you can really encourage mum and dad to trust their intuition a little bit. And obviously you can have still that professional opinion. And if there is something that needs further investigation, then absolutely it's warranted. But so often mum and dad come in and they say, like, I just really don't feel like this is normal. Or it may be the opposite. They may be saying, I actually feel like this isn't a problem and I'm being told X, Y, Z. So really forming um, that trust with mum and dad and encouraging them to listen to themselves because you as a professional, even for myself, if I'm spending an hour with a family, I'm only getting an hour out of 24 hours in that one day. So behaviour can be very different out of the home, especially if they're in, you know, quite a clinical setting. Um, Again, I'm really fortunate the practice that I practice from is essentially a playground for children so kids often love coming and they really do open up yeah but that's not always the case if you're going to a doctor's office or into a hospital situation so um i think remembering that you are only getting just a little tiny snapshot and that mum and dad are going to know the child better than anyone um and at the same time taking on board any flags that may be there again so that that child can have the appropriate help what are some of the challenges that can arise when you're working with families and parents um Mm. and how do you navigate these do you get many helicopter parents interfering parents that sort of thing Yes. So I feel like there's um, definitely two ends of the scale. You'll either get the parent who knows way more than you and has been on Dr. Google incessantly since the child was born. um, And they may have their own opinions formed around what the diagnosis is, what the treatment should be, what's appropriate in terms of when you should see some sort of change. And they can be pretty difficult to talk down from some of those views. I find that, I mean, it's amazing that there is such a wealth of information available to us online, but I'm seeing a lot of families finding themselves in like parenting forums and Facebook groups and those kinds of environments where it's not always um, balanced or evidence-based advice. Mm. And remembering, you know, what works for one family is not necessarily going to be able to be picked up and placed on another family and have the same outcome. A lot of multi-level marketing products that are targeted at families as well. And I find, yeah, mums and dads who are concerned about their child's health can easily be swayed into things like that. So on the one hand, yeah, you may have that more helicopter situation where I think going gently and providing plenty of evidence and really easy changes that families can make, um, but things that will provide a profound enough effect so that they are on board and are willing to persist is really important. And then you may have the other end of the scale where a family just feels like it's all too hard. And if they maybe have a child that has, you know, difficult behaviour or is a really fussy eater or um, there may be multiple siblings and just really, really busy day-to-day life, it can feel extremely overwhelming if you're suddenly encouraging them to you know, significantly change their diet or try to give their child a supplement that may be not very pleasant tasting or not very well received by the child um, or encouraging them to reduce screen time if they rely heavily on it. So in that situation, again, just having to be really gentle and find the smallest change that you can make that will have the biggest enough effect to move things forward for that family. Um, But it can be really difficult to navigate. I think a lot of families also can feel a lot of guilt around their child's presentation. Um, and again, 
hearing then sometimes that maybe diet or lifestyle factors could be playing a role in the expression of whatever the condition is can feel like a personal attack. So really navigating that gently so that parents don't feel like it's their fault and they haven't created a situation, but rather empower them so that they can know that there's really simple things to do within the home that can have that profound change. Well, there's a skill in itself. So yeah. can you can you give a cu- <laughs> give us a couple of examples of just sort of how you'd approach that very, mm. like the, we're talking about eggshells here, aren't we? Absolutely. Um, One family comes to mind and it just was very, very clear from my perspective that the child's consumption of dairy was causing some of the problems. So it started when he was a newborn and he was put onto a cow's milk formula and had from that, well, from that moment in time, had quite severe colic and reflux um, and was medicated accordingly. And then when he was introduced to more solid foods and weaned off formula onto cow's milk bottles and plenty of yogurt, plenty of cheese, like a pretty typical toddler-type diet, suddenly you're starting to see a lot of the skin issues occur and the constant stream of clear mucus. And to me, it just screamed hello too much dairy Mm, mm. (laughs) and yet it was one of his favorite foods and something that the family was absolutely not willing to remove from his diet Um, a lot of fears around calcium consumption and you know some of those other stories that we can pick up from the media or the Facebook forums or whatever it might be and so rather than you know in an adult client I might just say work with me. Can you give me four weeks off the dairy? Let's just do it. I'll give you plenty of resources. We'll make it really easy. Like I just need you to get on board essentially. Um, A little bit more tough love. It's okay. So rather than cutting out the dairy entirely, what can we maybe swap or what can we start with to see if we get any sort of change or get him adjusted to a new taste? Um, And it may, you know, from my mind, that might not feel like enough, but for them, it's just taking the small enough steps so that they can see, oh, actually, this isn't quite so bad. And, you know, providing them handouts about other forms of calcium foods and maybe recipes to go alongside that so that they're any of the fears or concerns that they have arise along the way, you can address and slowly, slowly walk um, towards that final change of removing a food entirely um, for a period of time, providing it's indicated. Um, Other things may be around, you know, often parents feel a little bit nervous about supplementing their children. Um, There's a, a thinking out there that if you start giving a child certain nutrients, their body will stop absorbing it from food, which is quite flawed and I'm not entirely sure where that came from. Um, But again, just sort of gently navigating that and rather than maybe, you know, if you see that there's five supplements that may be indicated, which I definitely wouldn't do with children, um, but just pick one and say, can we just start with it every second day or just once a day at half a dose and let's see what happens and slowly showing them that there's no adverse reactions. Again, continuing to educate them around the fact that their fears or whatever that concern is that they initially had isn't going to play out. Um, And then, yeah, gauging, I guess, their willingness to change after that. And sometimes families aren't willing to change, unfortunately. And I think all you can do in that situation is 
let them know that you're there when they are, you know, maybe at a point where they want to look at things again, providing as much information and supportive resources as you can, and then trusting that sometimes it's their own journey to you know, reach in their own time. Yeah, I love your attitude to this, Kate, I I must say. Um, Patience (laughs) is a virtue and you have it. Um, (laughs) I I was very interested by something you said at the very beginning and that was uh, they had a reaction and yet they Mm. were appropriately medicated, i.e. the symptoms were smothered. The Mm. initial insult was never looked at. How often do you find that this is the case? And, and Oh, very often. And I can just totally understand it from a mum's point of view because if you have a screaming baby in your arms and, you know, they may not be gaining weight appropriately and you're totally sleep-deprived and you're feeling totally guilty because you can't soothe your baby's pain and then a medical professional provides you with a solution that actually works to, you know, get rid of the crying the and that immediate pain mm. um i get it that a lot of families are like well i have i just had to do it for my baby's sake for my sake and often they're not really told of any further ramifications or of any alternatives that may have been helpful so yes it happens very very frequently and it's just such an emotional time when we're talking you know, newborn babies and mm, toddlers mm. and probably children of any age. My son's only 18 months old, so I'm that's as far as I've gotten in the, yeah. <laughs> the timeline of it being, you know, emotional. But um, I can understand that sometimes families, like, they just don't feel that they have time on their side to yeah. navigate other options. But it is such a raw, vulnerable time for, mm-hmm. you know, new parents especially. Second born, yeah. it's like, hey, yeah, this again. <laughs> um, but I was going to ask about formula changes. How mm-hmm. quickly do you tend to say, okay, look, let's change formula and try maybe, a you know, a goat's milk formula or something like that? I'm, I'm not a fan of soy formulas. Yeah. And how do you actually do that in practice? Do you tend to slowly decrease the amount of a milk formula while increasing the amount of a goat formula or do you do you tend to just swap Mm, um I tend to just swap but depending again on the parent and on the child situation so I've had a little boy this week who was projectile vomiting after every formula feed of cow's milk formula so in that situation like let's just swap and see what happens um, and move on to a goat's milk formula and see if it's better tolerated. Um, but at the same time, sometimes parents are like, oh, I have a huge stash of formula. Like I don't want it to go to waste. Yeah. You know, they spend a lot of money on it. So that may be a situation where you're like, okay, well, let's, you know, switch out one bottle at a time or do half-half and see how they tolerate it. Um, and, yeah, it, it can be really challenging from the practitioner's point of view mm. because, like if you're seeing that, let's say it hypothetically, it is that cow's milk formula that's causing some of the issues um, and, again, parents aren't willing to necessarily make the change immediately, then in my mind I'm thinking, oh, no, the symptoms aren't going to improve until we make this change, but you just have to work with what they're willing to do and continue, again, to provide that information so that hopefully they can get on board with your suggestions sooner rather than later. And with regards to what you mentioned about projectile vomiting, mm-hmm. is this after they've been assessed by a medical professional for, say, you know, polaric stenosis, something like that? Yeah. Or, right. Okay. Yeah. So it really is looking like cow's milk protein intolerance. Um, 
in that particular situation. But definitely if there's any like projectile vomiting repeatedly, a, a one-off, I'd think, mm, strange baby things that happen. Um, but, you know, if it's a repeated projectile vomiting and, again, some of that um, like not gaining weight or looking like any failure to thrive, then you're absolutely ascending straight onto their general practitioner and then usually onto a paediatrician um, for further assessment. And yeah. you mentioned behavioural issues in the children mm. before. So let's discuss some of the challenges that may arise when working with these children, mm. particularly when you want to maintain <laughs> the actual structure of your clinic rather than being trashed. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I mean, one of the things that I really, really find is important um, to do when working with children is in the consultation, you actually speak to the child as well as the parent. And that's no matter the age of the child. Like if you have a baby that obviously is like maybe not even making eye contact yet, then okay, you can probably like not ask them questions, but still I do find energetically just to address that the baby's there and to you look at the baby and to have some sort of connection is important. Mm. Um, but then with toddlers, like asking them questions and just really um, you definitely have to change your language to make it age appropriate and the way that you may word a question. I find with kids you have to really make sure you ask those open-ended questions. Otherwise, if you offer them option A, option B, they'll just pick one of the things that you've said. They're not going to go on to appropriately describe their yep. symptoms. Or, you know, if I've said to a child, like, oh, what's your favourite food? And if I say, do you like apples, bananas? They'll just say bananas. Yeah. So <laughs> making sure that you're not putting words into their mouth. Um, and you may need to brush up on some of your kids' TV shows and pop culture references so that you have parallels to draw um, or, you know, if you're trying to get them to eat more green veggies, like think about like their favourite TV character and put it into the context or sometimes even I've used like Minecraft as an, a way to explain to children what we're doing. Yeah. And like I'm not at all into Minecraft personally <laughs> but, you know, like, you guys, you're wanting to build your houses and your towns and so you've got to have really good materials to do that. Well, that's the same as the food that we're eating. So if you think about getting like really good wood for Minecraft and then you're able to build a much better house and, um, you know, that kind of stuff. So I don't know, it's possibly not accurate. I've never played Minecraft myself. No, but, well, <laughs> but I've like, seen I've seen my, and might I say adult, sons playing <laughs> Minecraft. Um, but, I, you know, one of the things that might actually be good is – I think in Minecraft they actually cultivate plants. Yeah. I don't know if there's junk food and things like that. Yeah. But I wonder if there's yeah. that analogy to say, well, you know, even in Minecraft they have healthy food. Yeah, yeah. And there's actually um, one of my patients, she's eight years old, loaned a book to me this week. It's called The Happy Happy Poo Book. Yeah. I don't know if other people are aware of it. Yeah. And it's awesome. It's all about gut bacteria and how, you know, you need to eat healthy food in order to feed the healthy bacteria. And it's got these, you know, funny little images of um, the bad bacteria and the different types of bad poo. And it's like, yeah, it's really good. There's heaps of resources out there like that. But even just coming up with your own analogies and things that kids will understand um, because they're not interested in, you know, science and research and clinical trials and even some of the language around how the body works it's just not they're not going to understand so um yeah back to the original question I'm sorry I definitely to kind of control the appointment do involve the child um as best I can and if you are planning on working with 
children a lot, I would highly recommend having a stash of toys and books in your office (laughs) because then at least if, you know, you are there for an hour chatting and the child hasn't brought anything um, of their own and even if they have, they always like something new to look at. So keep them occupied while you have a proper conversation um, with mum and dad. Um, And then I guess around like, Um, the behavior sometimes the interaction with mum and dad can be quite telling as well so just watching that family dynamic um, trying not to intervene because as much as there might be you know language or um, bribery or other things that don't resonate with you or that you may be thinking oh that could be part of what's going on in this health picture Mm. Um, just trying to be that fly on a wall and and be an observer and a supportive um, person that's yeah can help to positively influence the, the family dynamic yeah and talking about family dynamic you know usually mm. I'd, I'd say it's the mother who brings the child in to see you um at least the majority of time yes. um yeah what happens when you've got a a disparity uh mm. you've got one parent on board and the other parent isn't how do you work around that that issue with family dynamic I, I really do see this a lot. So um, you're right, it is, you know, most of the time mum who's bringing the child in for the appointment. Um, so if parents are still together and it's just that dad really doesn't have maybe that more open view of health or he's, you know, very much into junk food himself or whatever it might be, I really encourage both parents to come to any um, follow-up appointments because I find that once you can talk one-on-one to the dad you know it's Chinese whispers mum may have the best intentions of explaining what you've said to dad but she might not be able to answer any questions that he has or she might explain it slightly incorrectly and that could be enough for him to completely you know um just not be on board with any of the concepts so having both parents there can be really useful and then if there are any um you know, challenges or fears, you can address that in person rather than having it simmering away in the home. Um, Another situation is if parents aren't together anymore. So you may have the child spending half the time with mum, half the time with dad, and they can have a very, very different diet at either house. Um, I had a little girl comes to mind who every time she came back from, actually it was her mum's house, um, it was, yeah, dad who was very much on board with um you know, a kind of whole food diet and natural health. And every time she came back from mum's house, she had a flare of her eczema. And this persisted for um, quite some months, actually. And they it was basically all they could do because she was, you know, the relationship was very bad between mum and dad. Um, and the more that dad tried to encourage, you know, changes to the diet and continuing supplements in that situation, um, the the worse it got really. So right. essentially all we could do was have this really good plan of attack to mop up the effects um, of what happened in the week at mum's house and as the girl got older she was able to have a little bit more control around what she chose to eat as well so she was in high school by the end of when I was seeing her so um yeah able to actually purchase some things for herself um catching you know public transport could pop past the supermarket and dad was really supportive of that so yeah it can be really really challenging um and there's not a hard and fast rule and I think 
where with an adult patient, you know, it's just one person responsible for their own health and you can, if it gets to a point, give them a bit of tough love and just say, like, you've got to do this and I'm going to support you and here's the resources. But that's not always possible when you're working with um, two people who are caring for one other person's health. So, yeah, finding where you can make that change um, and then having support in place for perhaps the areas that you can't change. And and what about also when you've got, you know, you, you've initiated a dietary change with the child, parents are on board, you've got to mm-hmm. also consider siblings that may not yeah. have that same issue. And secondarily to that, you've got to also think about what about the child's peer group? It's really, really interesting. So firstly, with the, um, you know, if there are siblings and maybe you do have one child who has a lot of food sensitivities or a therapeutic need for a particular diet, and it might be quite restrictive for a period of time. Um, So it's not always appropriate to put the whole family on it if it's a simple change. So if, for example, we've got a child who needs to be, let's say, gluten-free, I would really encourage the whole family to be gluten-free, at least within the home, because then it's easier for the parents one lot of meals for everyone, theoretically. (laughs) Um, And then when out and about the other siblings who maybe can tolerate some bread or pasta or whatever it might be can go ahead and do that and the child who needs to stay gluten-free you know, isn't going to feel so out of place. Um, but if it's something, you know, a little bit more um, strict, so let's say you've got a child who you want to put on the GAPS diet, then that's very, very restrictive for an entire family. So depending on the age of the child, um, that's where, you know, really educating them as best you can around why you're making the changes you're making and explaining that no dietary change, unless it's a food allergy, should really be a forever thing. So, putting some kind of reference point for them around how long this is going to happen and what is going to make them feel in their body. Um, I find that with kids, like find the thing that they are most passionate about. So if they're really into sport or they're really into music or they're really into Minecraft or whatever it might be, finding that thing for them and explaining the changes in terms of how it's going to support that passion for them. Um, It tends to get them on board a little bit more even when it is quite challenging and kids also they feel it within their own body so if there is that therapeutic need and you've found the diet that works for them they want to feel better so they're often okay with it um actually the little girl who loaned me the poo book yeah she had quite a few um food intolerances show up in some testing and she was really distressed when we were going through the results like about bread and about the thought of not being able to have um for her it was actually just wheat so she was fine misspelt but about not being able to have just normal bread and um got quite emotional and I just followed up with her so it was four weeks down the track of avoiding the foods and she was like oh it was actually fine (laughs) and was really quite happy so sometimes it's just like the thought of the changes that are problematic but if you do provide enough resources um, of how those changes can be made within the family the execution is not necessarily quite as bad right um the peer group and even sometimes like daycares and schools can be a bit more challenging Mm. um i've had a number of daycare centres ask parents for a letter from their medical practitioner before they're willing to make dietary changes for the child, which really perplexes me because I just feel like, it, I mean, I understand that preparing food for a large number of children and it's definitely more challenging, but 
mum and dad should have some say around what they want their child to eat and it shouldn't necessarily, like if mum and dad say, no, that food's not for our family, then in my mind that should be enough. But um, oftentimes, yeah, they do want some sort of um, communication. Some um, daycares will accept that from me. Others will require it to come from a medical professional. Isn't that interesting? Um, because I get, yeah. I'll bet you any money that if it was due to a religious uh, restriction, there would be mm-hmm. no issue. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and I'm not sure what the reason is. I mean, some some daycare centres do allow, or they um, the families have to pack the food for the children. Mm-hmm. So I think that's great. Yep. Um, but in the centres where they provide the food, yeah, they're not always on board. And then even if they are on board. They can't always keep a really close eye on what the kids yeah. are doing. So yeah, very often true. They'll, <laughs> they'll serve it on like a different coloured plate so that the carers are aware of um, children who do have those dietary needs. Um, they'll try as best they can to watch. But, yeah, kids are pretty <laughs> quick and sneaky, so there can be some food sharing. Yes. Um, and then same at school, like no child wants to be the odd one out or different to their peers. So it's I think they're... Um, I do find that in some schools and whether it's to do with, I don't know, like level of awareness or, um, you know, socioeconomic demographic, but Mm. some schools, all of the kids will have fairly healthy lunch boxes. Like they've all got those beautiful bento boxes with their chopped up veggies and hummus and leftover meats. And, you know, and so then the kids are on board because that's what all their friends are eating. But in the schools where kids maybe are turning up with a number of packets in their lunchbox um, and that's what they want, then, yeah, it can be a bit harder if the child has to make some changes. Thankfully, there are so many options available to us now. So while, yes, ideal would be everyone's cooking everything from scratch, it's not the reality. Um, So having a look in your health food stores or even in the major supermarkets at a lot of products that will tick a lot of the boxes. So, you know, at the very least, you can find great gluten-free, great dairy-free, great egg-free, great nut-free options um, that look like a packet food but maybe have some slightly better ingredients. And do you enlist, uh, you know, things like childhood heroes, for instance, sports heroes that might, let's say, have chosen to go vegetarian, that sort of that sort of thing, to say, look, it's not just you, there are other great people out there that that are doing this Definitely. as well. Definitely, yeah, and particularly in more that teenage um, age group where they might be on social uh-huh. media quite a lot, there's some really good, very inspirational um, people on social media who perhaps are portraying the right message around diet and nutrition with lots of healthy meal ideas. So that can be um, a great resource as well, just yeah, making sure that you're picking the ones that aren't then also posting, you know, a million photos of them in bikinis on the beach and not that there's a problem with that, but I feel that that can not be the appropriate message for, um, you know, impressionable teenagers. Yeah. You know, we'd love to work with diet 100%. Every now and again, you're Mm. going to have to use supplements and this Mm. can be particularly challenging for especially younger children, but also that defiant young teenage um, um, era as well. So how do you work differently in terms of prescribing supplements and and also testing? Mm. So I might kind of break this into the different (laughs) age ranges because it really does change um, quite significantly. So starting with babies, um, where possible, I would avoid supplementation. Um, So just 
you know, oftentimes it's if you've got a little baby before they've had the introduction of solids, you might be looking at mum's diet and if there's things there that are causing aggravations. Um, there's some supplements that I would feel 100% totally comfortable all the time. So things like cod liver oil is really safe from birth. Um, you know, that can be great depending on what it is that the child's presenting with. And I personally feel very comfortable prescribing herbal medicines to babies and children of all ages. Um, and I know that's something that a lot of practitioners feel uncertain about because unfortunately it is um, a demographic that there's not a lot of, you know, good quality evidence per se around the use of herbal medicines. So you're very much having to trust your intuition and your clinical judgment um, around, you know, how you're prescribing and the dose that you'd be prescribing there. Again, it's something that you'd work with mum and dad. So some parents are like, oh, absolutely, yeah, let's do some herbs, particularly if they've had experience with herbal medicine um, themselves. But some are like, oh, I really don't feel right about giving something to my tiny baby. So um, in that situation, you might more be supplementing mum. We know that there's some transmission of the active constituents and, you know, nutrients as well through the breast milk. It's not really entirely measurable. And again, there's not a lot of um, really strong research around exactly what is transferred through the breast milk from a herbal medicine point of view. But I also believe very much in the energetics of the herbs that we're working with. So um, I'm happy for mum to take something and trust that the baby will have some benefit. And anecdotally, we do see that. Um, in terms of how I would work out dosage for an infant, um, it's, there's really no hard and fast rule. I feel it's not an exact science. So I don't know how evidence-based it is to say that I use my intuition, <laughs> but often um, I am using my intuition and I do tend to um, feel aligned with drop dosing a lot of the time with my patients. Yeah. So that works really beautiful for babies. Um, babies tend to be quick responders, which can be good and bad, I guess. Um, you know, you'll know if something's not working very quickly, but you'll know if something's working very quickly. And I always, always err on the side of caution and start with the lowest dose possible. Um, and that could be one drop of a herbal formula um, mixed in with a little bit of breast milk or, um, you know, depending if it's, in an alcohol base or maybe you're doing like a herbal tea as a um, a way to administer those herbs, but like you might pop it straight onto mum's nipple or you could give, um, you know, diluted in a bit of um, filtered water. It just really depends on what mum and dad feel most comfortable with there as yeah. well. I was just <laughs> going to ask with regards to um, herbs coming through breast milk, um, mm-hmm. we do know culturally that babies that are attuned to certain tastes from their mother's dietary intake, i.e. Mediterranean diet equals Mm -hmm. much higher doses of garlic. Um, Mm. And that comes through the breast milk. So they're attuned to that and the babies accept that. Whereas if you have a mother who doesn't have doesn't eat garlic and then suddenly eats it, the baby can very quickly <laughs> taste that. So it's really interesting. Yeah. You know, it, these herbs definitely, at least in part, come through that breast milk. Yeah, absolutely. And we do, we see that. Like when you administer herbs to mum, there is a flow-on effect in bub. I know that there was some research around um, 
mums taking Senna, which is not something that I would <laughs> recommend for a breastfeeding mum. Get really ready for that for one. <laughs> too many people, but they, they did find um, like measurable levels of those active constituents coming through in the breast milk. Right. Um, but to my knowledge, there's not a lot of quality research around other um, no, no. herbs and their active constituents. Yeah. Um, but I guess like, you know, with drop dosing of herbs, it's such a small amount to the point where some people may say that's not going to have any effect, but um, it's certainly not going to have a negative effect. And from my experience, I've only seen it have positive effects for bub. Yeah, look, we're, we're dealing with, you know, when we're talking herbs, we're dealing with things that have been ta- imbibed by humans mm. over eons. So it's not something like yeah. a new drug. And you're going to pick and choose like the types of herbs that you may be using with a baby, like not going for things that are overly stimulating or not going for things that are overly, you know, hormonally active and that sort of thing. So generally it's things that will help to clear mucus or support their immune system or support their nervous system. So you're looking at the very gentle herbs to begin with anyway. Then you've got different age groups, the older ones. Mm. So if we're thinking more now in that toddler or young child age group, Um, often the issue there is with taste compliance um, and also they generally can't swallow tablets. Um, If a child can swallow a tablet, that is awesome and I would absolutely be encouraging, um, you know, trying to do like capsules or tablets where possible because then that whole issue of taste is completely removed. Um, But if we're thinking we're using more powders and liquids, then, um, yeah, it can just be that taste refusal or the other problem is sometimes mum and dad who may be a little bit too busy to remember to administer the um, supplement and the child can't sort of take control of that themselves at that age. Um, I do find that there's a lot of good products on the market that have been geared towards children and the taste is fairly palatable, but you never know. There's always, you know, children who will love or hate different tastes, even when you think they might really, really love it. Um, So often then I'll be looking at other ways of getting it into them. So you might actually find that you have to mix it with, you know, a little bit of yogurt or mashed fruit or um, some supplements might actually taste better in a bit of a savoury puree. So it might be like mashed potato or, um, you know, a tomato-based sauce or something like that. Obviously not heating the supplements, but putting it into the final product. Um, I find that you can... um, you know, dilute things quite a lot to reduce the taste and then just ensuring that over a day the child's having whatever that liquid is that it's been diluted in. Or sometimes you may need to have something mixed with a bit of honey. So picking like a manuka honey, for example, that will have some therapeutic action yeah. um, alongside the the sugar that is present. Um And even making things like gummies, so um, it can make the dosage and being exact around dosage a little bit more tricky, but I do encourage families to make little gelatin gummies with like some fresh fruit juice, um, some gelatin. You may need to add a little bit of sweetener to that and you can often hide supplements in there as well. So kids think they're having a little bit of a a lolly or a treat, Um, but yeah, it's actually got some therapeutic value there. Well, you know what? I, I'm really mm. glad you say make the gummies because yeah. some of the gummies <laughs> I've seen on the market are laced with sugar. Oh, gosh, yeah. Definitely don't buy the retail, you know, vitamin gummies. They're um, often not, you know, the best forms of nutrients, the best dose of nutrients, and 
yes, what they're made with can be questionable as well. So yeah. homemade gummies is it's really, really easy and that's actually quite a fun activity for kids to get involved in as well. Ah, cool. Sometimes you may have to not let them see the therapeutic stuff go into it, otherwise they might <laughs> refuse it just on principle. But, yeah, they can get involved in some of the elements of that. <laughs> right. Okay, so I mentioned testing earlier. What about testing? Because... You know, we'd like to avoid invasive testing as much as possible. That's got to be done by an appropriate practitioner. But what mm. what in non-invasive tests are there and what can they tell us? Mm. So I would nine times out of ten avoid any blood draws for children. Um, just really depends on the situation. If you do have a child that's quite complex or maybe they've had a really fast decline, then sometimes it is necessary. And there are some really good... Um, you know, like practitioners or nurses out there who can do a very, very gentle blood draw for children. Again, you may need a bit of bribery and a lot of talking around um, what's going to happen to get them on board. But as much as possible, I would avoid that and instead opt for things like, um, you know, like an organic acids test can be really insightful and that's just a urine collection. Often with kids, you're doing things like a stool test, which is maybe a little bit gross, but they might actually be on board with that yeah. um, and not an invasive collection. Um, even things like, um, you know, urinary cryptopyrals assessment, so again, urine testing, food sensitivity testing can be a blood spot, which that often is um, not that well received, but it's such a small little finger prick and if you get it right, it's just one finger prick that you need to do to get um, a bit of blood and you can get a lot of information out of that. Um, I do find that with kids, it they in some ways they can be um, more complex and in other ways they're really, really easy. I guess we don't have as many layers um, as you know, the adult patients, so they haven't got years of accumulated stress, whether that's emotional stress or environmental stress. Um, it's usually like if parents are bringing them, they've got the condition that they're presenting with and there may be some other comorbidities, but I do find that you don't necessarily need to do so much digging um, as you may do with an adult patient. So if you can find one or two tests that are... Um, yeah, non-invasive, then it can be really insightful and really change things. And also, I mean, I personally, unfortunately, don't use iridology in my practice, but iridology can be amazing and completely non-invasive um, and great for children. So, yeah, there's definitely ways of assessing without doing that blood draw. Kate, there's so much to learn and so much I've learned today. I mean, you've obviously got a gift, uh, not just with naturopathic practice, but also dealing with people and having the patience and the acceptance to, to work with them at their own time pace. I've got to thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. We're definitely going to be putting up the link to the Happy Happy Poo book up on the <laughs> FX Medicine website. I, I loved chatting with you today. Thank you so much for joining us today on FX oh, Medicine. Thank you so much for having me. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Thanks for listening. To make sure you never miss an episode, Subscribe to us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify. You can also let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover by contacting us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au or by connecting with us on Facebook or Instagram.